Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm your host, Tom Williams. As COVID-19 continues to present our state and nation with so many challenges with regard to children's schooling, joining us on the show today is the Chair of the North Carolina State Board of Education, Eric Davis, and the Chief Deputy Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, Susan Gale Perry, to discuss the most recent guidance released about how to safely reopen North Carolina Public Schools for 2020-2021. Also joining us today is Tabari Wallace, Principal of West Craven High School, and Matt White, Principal of Apex Friendship High School, who represent our high school principals across North Carolina who have done amazing things to honor the 2020 graduating seniors and help them cap off a year that was anything but normal. I'd like to welcome to the show Eric Davis, Chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education, and Susan Gale Perry, the Chief Deputy Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you both for joining us today. Our pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure. Eric, last week, uh, the State Board of Education announced a detailed plan to reopen our schools uh, this fall and taking into consideration uh, where North Carolina stands with regards to COVID-19 cases. Can you give us a quick understanding of what the currently uh, plans are in looking at the differences around plans A, B, and C? Well, certainly, and Tom, thanks for the opportunity to join you on Education Matters, and thanks to you and the whole public school forum for what you do for our students and teachers across the state. Um, last week was the culmination of a lot of hard work, both by our great partners at the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as teachers and superintendents and members of the Department of Public Instruction in putting together some guidance to plan for the reopening of school next year. You know, there's no better place for our students to be than in their classrooms with their classmates and in front of their teachers. That, that's where the best instruction and best learning occurs. But we're mindful that uh, we need to be very judicious in ensuring the safety of our students and staff. And so the, uh, the uh, DHHS released the health guidance on Monday and we followed with the school operational plan on Thursday and those plans are well coordinated and they sync up nicely and the basic concept is that districts and charter schools need to plan for three scenarios. Uh, the first scenario is the mode that we're currently in which is a all remote instruction mode which is the most restrictive and frankly, the most challenging in delivering education to our children. The other extreme is the least restrictive and it's the plan that we hope to be able to get to, if not at the beginning of next year, sometime during the course of next year when all of our students would be in our schools, um, we would be doing a high amount of hygiene and cleaning and hand washing and so forth, but essentially, we'd have all students back in school uh, with their teachers and classmates and enjoying uh, activities. And then there's a plan in the middle, which is the most difficult to plan for. It assumes a reduced density of about 50%. It requires six foot social distancing. And essentially that means that only a portion, about half of our students roughly, would be in our facilities. Um, receiving instruction on site, the remainder would continue to receive instruction in a remote mode. And so what superintendents and charter schools are doing now, leaders are doing now, is determining how to implement those three plans in the best way possible. It's, it's likely that we might start with one plan at the beginning of the year and then move to 
an alternative plan depending on how the year goes. Hopefully it will be less restrictive, but this is the best way we can move forward in maximizing the opportunity to get our children back into school where we need them while also ensuring the health and safety of our staff and, and those students. Thank you very much, Susan. Uh, we know that July 1 is the target date uh, to take a look at the data around COVID-19 uh, and make a decision about the opening of school plans. Share with our audience why July 1 and what kind of metrics you anticipating relying on to make this important decision. Sure, thank you, Tom. I, I wanna echo Eric's thanks for the opportunity to be with you today on Education Matters and, and also for all the good work that you and the Public School Forum do. Uh, we have worked so closely with um, Chairman Davis and the school board and our partners at DPI on this, on this plan and really wanted to make sure that our public health guidance was, was both useful and clear. And that is one of the reasons why we have set the July 1 date, honestly, is that we feel like we need as much time as we can have to look at our data, look at our trends, make good public health decisions, while at the same time balancing that need with the need for schools to really plan and communicate effectively with their teachers, with students and families. So um, that we set that date knowing that there are some schools who could start back as early as, as, as July, later in July. So we want to give, give them as much time to plan um, and, and, set, and set the goal on July 1. So that was the rationale for the date. In terms of what the metrics are that we're going to be using, and we talk about this in the public health guidance that we released, we are going to stick to the metrics that we have been using all along. And these are the metrics that Governor Cooper and Secretary Cohen uh, repeatedly refer back to in their press conferences. And just as a reminder to folks on what some of those are, we're talking about the number of lab confirmed cases, the percent of positive cases relative to total tests, the number of daily hospitalizations, the number of emergency department visits that are, are due to COVID-like symptoms. And then we're also looking at things like our state capacity around um, adequate supply of PPE, really, really important, um, contact tracing and and testing capacity as well. So those are the metrics we've been using. Uh, it's no one metric. We really have to look at them in combination and see what they're telling us about whether our, our healthcare system has the capacity to respond adequately. Um, and I also just want to say at this moment that the most important thing to remember in all of these metrics is what we can do right now to take steps to make, make those metrics go in the right directions and, and get our kids back to school. And we know those three things. I'm going to talk about them every time, which is wait six feet apart, wear a cloth face covering, um, and, um, and do those kinds of things that will be really impactful. Great. Um, Eric, we've highlighted on the show before, and we've of course talked, and you all are very concerned about it too, about the equity concerns that have been raised because of remote learning. Can you just talk a little bit about um, your thoughts on the issue and what the state can do to mitigate that inequities that exist with uh, broadband access, device access, and those kind of things related to remote learning? Sure, well, Tom, this uh, COVID pandemic has uh, really exposed 
a similar societal pandemic around inequities and racism. And the broadband access is um, just one aspect of the gaps that our state must close in order to meet our constitutional obligation of a sound basic education for all children. I'm grateful for the General Assembly's uh, recent support and funding to uh, extend um, our capability to try to reach students. We've got um, cell uh, devices on buses. We've got private industry that has contributed in a number of ways, uh, devices and otherwise. We're training teachers in how to do remote instruction. But, but if we really want to close this gap, then we're going to need to take the same approach that was used many years ago when we committed as a state and nation to electrify every corner of our state. And that's what's needed. We need broadband, reliable, uh, speedy response to every corner of our state in order to reach our students. But, but that's really just one piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, if, if this pandemic exposed anything, it's that, it's that we have vast inequities that are supported by systemic racism. And that in order to provide the, the education that our children need, and in order to leave North Carolina a better place, we've got to just confront those realities head on and make the difficult, necessary conversations and decisions to come together as one and to be um, strong, unified, caring for each other in a way that uh, treats each other the way we want to be treated. That's kind of the essence of it. Right. And, uh, and I think in one of our recent meetings, that's the sentiment that I heard strongly from my colleagues on the board. We, we just right. believe in North Carolina so strongly and every North Carolinian that we can do this together. Thank you. And uh, Susan, um, we've got about a minute left. So we've issued your guidance as well from DHHS, and it talks about not only the physical well-being of the students, but also the social, emotional, or mental well-being of the student. And you've made some recommendation. We've got about one minute left. Can you kind of highlight what those are? Sure. I, I think a lot of our recommendations are about making sure that families and children have good information, have access to mental health supports that they might need. This is a very stressful time for children and families and for teachers, um, both in terms of, of some of the structural racism and inequities that we've, we've seen raised as a result of this um, disruption in people's lives, fear of the disease. So all of those reasons, we're going to need good mental health supports, good, clear, common sense information, and, and, and calm, calm from our teachers, calm from our leaders. Well, Mr. Chairman, we thank you for being on the show today and all the work that you're doing. Madam Chief Deputy Secretary, thank you for everything. And Godspeed, and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. More Education Matters will continue after this short break. Education Matters is brought to you each week in part by Town Bank, serving others, enriching lives. Joining us now are Tabari Wallace, principal of West Craven High School and Matt White, principal of Apex Friendship High School. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you for having us. 
Pleasure. Great. Uh, Tabari, I'm going to start with you. You and your team's amazing work uh, to support all of your 2020 West Craven High graduates gained all sorts of attention. Um, been featured on the Today Show. Just talk to me about your team's motivation and thoughts around how to really recognize your 2020 grads in light of COVID-19. Well, we, we thought of how much uh, the class of 2020 has lost, uh, what has really been taken away from them by COVID. Um, if you think of the senior activity, senior week, the prom, uh, spring athletic sports, uh, the spring arts um, productions that they do as far as theater, band, course, um, APAs. I mean, I can just keep going on and on what was really snatched from these seniors. So the least we could do was bring something as a token, as a bridge until we can get them across the stage. So when we took the signs to each house, we said, wouldn't it be great? We have 485 square miles. They told us we couldn't do it. But at West Craven High School, we don't follow tradition. We make tradition. So we went out and we, you know, partnered with the community and we definitely sent out about seven or eight different parades to go and visit every single child, complete with engine, fire, everything. And we planted that sign in front of the children and we told them, every time you come outside your house, we want you to look at it and just know West Craven High School is going to get you across that finish line. And we pushed our graduation back to August 1st so we could have a traditional graduation with pomp and circumstance. And every time my babies leave their front porch, they look down at that sign knowing that that promise is to come. Right. So that's pretty much how we did it. And now that's their bridge to, to finish in their 13 year journey. That's great. Well, Matt, many of us were inspired and really moved watching the YouTube video of um, your touching tribute to your Apex Friendship High School uh, class of 2020. Tell us a little bit about it. Um, like Tabari, we just felt terrible for our seniors because they had lost so much. And as I said in the video, um, graduation commencement is such a huge deal for principals but it's even more important for students and their parents. So I, to be honest, I stumbled upon the idea. I, I saw a video on, on, on Twitter, I believe, of this guy in Vernon Hills, Illinois, who was writing his kids' names on the wall. And um, we're a pretty new school. We have some blank walls. And I just thought, you know, that is a great idea. So I was fortunate enough to um, have a very, very talented student named Sidney Turner, who had done a video earlier about the senior class. So I enlisted Sydney to come and produce it. And it was just one of those things that everything came together. She, she just did an incredible job um, making the story come to life. And it was, it was a labor of love, but it seemed to resonate with people. And um, in fact, we did our graduation on, on campus just um, last Thursday and Friday. So we built into the graduation experience an opportunity for the kids to go down and have their pictures taken in front of the wall. And, and it was really important. I had many, many kids and parents who said they just appreciated the, the personal touch. And um, a lot of people said I had good handwriting, which I didn't really, I didn't really realize that. But, um, but it, it, was, it was just an idea. It was just fortunate. I was in the right place at the right time and, and had, again, an excellent student to help me work it out. Yeah, it was great. Um, Tabari, I'm going to come back to you and then uh, let Matt uh, chime in too. So as you talk to your high school principal peers across the state with commencement pretty much behind you uh, the, the school year and looking at the new year, what are some of the most sensitive issues you're trying to address this summer related to reentry into the fall for the classes of 2021 through 2024? And and how do you kind of see faculty, staff, parents, students voice in that process? 
Um, well, we pretty much, we had to hurry up and wait. Uh, we were waiting for the plan to be unveiled, which was last week. And uh, now we're trying to react to it with the three phases that we have to prepare for. And we're trying to educate our parents and, and current uh, stakeholders to make sure they understand what we're going to be pressed with next year and trying to create a schedule. Um, we even here try to create a cohort schedule where the kids travel together. And in a high school, I know, I know my colleague would definitely agree, it is almost impossible with CTE courses and the different arts and the things that we have to put them as a group as, um, as the middle school and elementary does. So it's more of an education piece in regards to getting, getting ready for, for next year, um, but definitely a planning piece as well, um, making sure all voices are heard. Matt, how about you and Apex Friendship? Yeah, I agree. And in fact, it, it's a little bit like what we had to do for graduation. And that was we had to accomplish the mission of graduation, but yet keep everybody safe. That's right. And so I think that that's the challenge going forward is, like Tabari said, um, like at, at our school, we have over 2,600 students. And so I can't imagine that we're going to have 2,600 kids coming back at the same time the, the way they've done in the past. Um, looking at those guidelines that have been sent out, it's going to be a tremendous challenge to balance um, a complicated block schedule where the kids change classes um, with keeping them safe with social distancing and PPEs. And, you know, there's been some discussion about taking everybody's temperature before they come into the building. Again, with, with 2,600 kids, that's going to be a huge challenge. Yeah. So March 13th, the schools were going to be closed and it ended up for the rest of the year. Um, each of you switched to remote learning. Um, you've got a lot of students who have access to the internet and bandwidth, and you've got students that don't have access to bandwidth or the internet. Can both of you, starting with you, Tabari, share what were some of the lessons you learned in looking at moving to a remote learning environment? Uh, the big lesson we learned that uh, incorrect or misguided uh, information gathered from a survey will sometimes put you more behind the eight ball than, than help you. Um, and when you ask students, do they have internet at home? The first thing they're gonna say is yes, um, because they have their cell phone. The kids think that that cell phone is internet. That is not a platform to do six hours worth of work at home on. You don't have a hotspot that can last that long over a, a, a 30 day period. So first thing we had to do was find out who actually had good internet, like hubs that you can do actual class work with. Um, so that was the first learning curve we did. After that, um, we had to provide a way to get, because we had about 40% of our kids didn't have internet, to get them packets and work home um, while the other ones did work um, synchronously online. Great. Matt, how about at Apex Friendship? Well, I think like teachers all over, um, not just the state, but the country, um, you always have people who are early adopters. And you've got some people who are already using technology. They they'd flipped their classroom. They were using online resources. But you also had some people who were, were not early adopters. Um, just like with kids, you have some kids that are um, very aware and very knowledgeable and um, can jump on the internet and do assignments. Um, so the thing that we learned is that one size doesn't fit all and that you have to have in, in wake, we talked about flexibility and grace. But I think for teachers, um, th this situation pushed them out of their comfort zone and they've learned so much about planning and implementing lessons and accountability and assessments that I don't think we, we ever would have gotten to without having been forced into that. 
So I think in some ways, um, we looked at the spring as kind of a, a rehearsal, as a practice, because it was very, very difficult to hold the kids accountable. And with the state guidelines, we didn't have a whole lot of leverage. But I feel like that the teachers learned a lot about remote learning. And I think the kids did too, that probably going forward is going to help us a lot. Very good. We've got about two minutes left in this segment, and I'd like to really close up by giving each of you some time to really talk about uh, plan A, uh, everybody comes back, plan C, everybody's remote, that brings some challenges too, but plan B in the middle is a combination of face-to-face -face and remote. What are some of the logistical things that you all are really talking about? I know district level wise, peers with other high schools, what are some of the main things that you're trying to hash out, think about? Okay, and I'll say uh, plan B is how we're gonna look at it, and this is the best that I've seen. Uh, you've heard A, a Day, B Day, and you've heard, you know, I, I think we need to, you heard of the hybrid. I think the best thing we can do out here, being that we service 485 square miles, is do half day, half day. Now we do lose 25 minutes of instruction, but at least the buses run one time. Everybody's fed when they get there, temperature's taken one time, and then we almost switch. So okay. teaching, the bad part about it is teachers do have to teach that same content twice, but now they become masters of their own. Right. Um, yeah. But as far as logistically, that is the best way not to have that big gap in learning that A day, B day does too. Okay. So Matt, I think we've got a, Matt, we've got about 30 seconds. Oh, I think it's going to be flexibility. I think that's the key because um, we're trying to plan right now for orientation for our freshmen for next year. We're not sure what to orient them to because we don't know what, what August 17th is gonna look like. So I think it's really important that going into this, um, the public, the parents, the kids, and the schools really keep it a, a sense of flexibility because we don't know what the fall is gonna look like yet. Well, I wanna thank both of you for number one, what you did with the class of 2020 and to recognize them and what you're planning to do for the incoming class of 2021. Thanks for being here. And after the break, it's this week's final word. When you think back to your years in high school and which moments were among the most memorable, you may recall the first day of your senior year and a special feeling knowing that at the end of the school year, a major milestone would be realized as you walked across the stage with your diploma in hand and moved into the first stage of adulthood and independence. Others will think about a peak learning experience with that special teacher in their favorite subject, a special performance, the first college acceptance letter, a championship season, completing that important FAFSA application, or maybe meeting the person who became your lifelong best friend. For high schools, as one of our society's most significant public institutions, the most important event of the year, hands down, is graduation day. This day is the opportunity our schools, families, and communities have to publicly elevate and celebrate each individual student and their class for the many individual accomplishments and class achievements. For our 100,000 plus graduates in our class of 2020, as well as their parents, families, teachers, and administrators, they've had to confront head on the realities and restrictions caused by COVID-19. As a result, how to celebrate our seniors on this long anticipated day required creativity, flexibility, and even grace to assure our class of 2020 
and their many achievements were rightfully recognized and celebrated in the manner they deserved. From parades and yard signs to virtual speeches and drive-through awarding of diplomas, local schools and their communities have done their level best to assure our class of 2020 knew their accomplishments were valued and that their resilience in facing the regrettable impact on the final quarter of their senior year was honored. To our class of 2020, well done. Also, best wishes as you take the valuable lessons learned throughout your time leading to graduation, and may you use these to inspire and guide you in all future endeavors as you chart your course to self-fulfillment and personal success. Out of respect for our class of 2021, let's be vigilant as a state as we continue the fight against COVID-19. And when in public, let's wear our mask, keep our social distance when needed, and yes, wash our hands frequently. So in June 2021, we can return to an in-person graduation day that every student deserves to experience. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next week. Thank you.